Church, I believe with all my heart, 6402 Peters Creek Road could be a church that is filled with a congregation that's two, even three times this size every week. There's people who are hurting, that are far from God, that need hope. And the only real hope that they can find that will answer all the problems and challenges they face is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we continue in our series through the book of Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. And in just a moment, we will partake in the Lord's Supper. And at North Roanoke, the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper is this. If you are a baptized believer in right standing with a local church, then we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper. Parents, if, if your children have not yet professed faith in Christ and been baptized, we, we would ask that you let the elements pass before them, and for that to be a moment of instructing them of their need to trust in Christ and to receive the cleansing that only His blood provides. And as we begin, it's just a blessing to see the children and this new generation that God is raising up. I want to pray over them, and then we'll dive into this text together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We need you. God, we need each other. You did not create us to be islands. You did not create us to be divided by our preferences. You created to us to be united in our allegiance to Jesus Christ and our love for the Father. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would allow this preacher, this vessel of clay, to speak truth in a way that it changes us from the inside out. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began working our way through the book of Hebrews, a book that reminds us that Jesus is better or greater. Can you say better? Better. The word better occurs in verse 4 for the first time in the book of Hebrews, and we'll find it a total of 12 times in this book. That's twice the amount that we see that word in the rest of the New Testament. Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is better or that Jesus is greater when tempted to retreat from Jesus or redefine him, we've got to know and believe and affirm that Jesus is better. The Word of God, as the Word of God, Jesus is God's final prophet. He's the final word to us who makes sense of all of God's other words. As the high priest and the perfect sacrifice, he can cleanse our sin and plead our case. As the king, he now reigns forever in these last days, and his lordship and his kingdom are final realities. We either trust in the king or we perish eternally. Jesus is God the Son, the creator and the sustainer of all that is, he is one with the Father and capable of redeeming everything that's been made because he made all that exists. And if you missed last week, you are now caught up. But then in verse 4, Hebrews transitions to the question of what about the angels? What about the angels? Now down through the centuries, Jesus has often been thought of as just a high ranking angel well he was just created and he was created first among the angels so he's not really different from the angels and what has happened is an inappropriate attention to and fascination with angels has has permeated the lives of people down through the centuries in fact during the period of between the writing of the old testament and the coming of jesus there are even some jewish people who begin to worship angels and revere angels. This is why Paul writes in Colossians 2.18, Let no one 
keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. I'm not sure why angels sometimes capture people's attention and imagination more than Jesus, but as a pastor, I can tell you that they do. To be sure, angels are an impressive part of God's creation. I want to read a summary that Moeller gives in his commentary on this book. Angels reside in the heavenly assembly and are part of the throng worshiping before the throne of God. Angels of God Angels are messengers of God, and they carry out His purposes. The angels function as witnesses of major redemptive historical events, such as the birth of Christ. They are also agents of God's justice. Revelation indicates that Christ will lead an angelic army in the last day to execute His judgment on the world. So angels are important in spiritual warfare. They do exist But as great as angels are, and as real as angels are, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is much better than the angels. Much better. You might call this one of the major understatements of Scripture. It'd be somewhat like saying UVA is much better at Virginia Tech in football right now. That would be an understatement. (laughs) They're a whole lot better than the Hokies are right now. Fifteen years of history doesn't matter. It's just plain facts, right? But, but that would even be a terrible analogy because Jesus and angels aren't even the same thing. UVA is a football team. Virginia Tech is a football team. At least that's what they say. But at the end of the day, Jesus is God. He's God Almighty, and the angels are something different. Jesus is the uncreated Lord and God of the universe. Angels are created by God Himself. It's the difference between someone who is always self-existent, always was, will be, and someone who has a beginning. Angels. Jesus is much better than the angels. Now, because of the special nature of today's service and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to try to cut it short a teeny bit this morning. But I want you to know that even though we only go to verse 6, that these few verses are part of a larger section that's all about proving that Jesus is better than the angels. And the author will quote from the Psalms five times, once from the prophets and once from the law, in order to prove to us that The consistent witness of the Old Testament is that God's Son is greater. Jesus is greater than all the angels. The angels, Paul tells us, were mediators of the Old Covenant. And what the author of Hebrews wants us to know is that if you run back to the Old Covenant, you're running back to something that was mediated by someone who was lesser than the New Covenant, which is mediated by Christ Himself. This is the covenant that comes from the Son of God. Would you join me? In standing for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. You may be seated. There's two things that I want you to see in the verses that we read this morning. 
to have a faith that pleases God. Do you want to have a faith that pleases God? Do you want to have a faith that gladdens the heart of God? Do you want to have a faith that goes the distance for God? If you want to have that kind of faith, a faith that perseveres, then you need to understand two things. Jesus has a better name than the angels. And the angels worship Jesus as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has a name that is much better than the angels. In verse 4, we are reminded that Jesus has inherited permanently, has inherited in an ongoing way, a name, an authority, a position which is superior or more excellent than the name of the angels. If we were to think of Jesus and the angels on an organizational chart, Jesus isn't on the chart. Jesus made the chart. He made everything on the chart. Nothing on the chart is the object of our worship. Jesus is who we worship. While Jesus was always God's Son, from the beginning He's been God the Son, there's a sense in which in His humanity, by becoming a baby, that He grows up to maturity and He learns wisdom and He learns obedience and He proves to us that He is the long-awaited Son through His perfect submission and obedience to the Father. If you read the Old Testament, it's basically a story of a bunch of sons who failed. Even some sons along the way that looked like he might be the Messiah, but then he died and he was not raised. He still leaves us looking for Jesus, the son who does not fail. All these other sons died and they were powerless to conquer death, but not Jesus. The fact that Jesus is Son is proven and declared in His resurrection and in His ascension to the right hand of the Father. And this is where in Philippians 2.9 we learn that because of His perfect obedience as a man to His Father that God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him, listen to it, the name which is above every name. The name above every name is the name Lord. He goes on to say in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. The name above every name is Yahweh or Lord. But in this case, the author of Hebrews is talking not about the name Lord, but the name Son. Here's what he is saying about Jesus, who is Lord. Don't minimize Jesus and put angels above him or even close to him because there is no angel which is a son. Indeed, it was the angel Gabriel who said to Mary, do you remember what Gabriel said to Mary? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. In verse 5, to deepen our understanding of the significance of the fact that Jesus is Son, the author presents us with a rhetorical question. Do you ever use rhetorical questions in conversation to move along the conversation, to advance your argument? Do you really think UVA is better than Virginia Tech right now? Yes, I do. So the rhetorical question that he asks is based on Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he asks us this question, Which angel of all the myriads and thousands of angels that there are, tell me one angel that the Father ever addresses as his son? And the answer is you can't find one. There are no angels addressed as son. Yes, sometimes in the Old Testament 
the angels are called the sons, plural, of God, but God never addresses an angel, not the archangel Michael, not Gabriel, not any other angel. Here's the Father himself say, you are my son. From eternity past, there's only been one son. The Father has known his son as his only begotten. The Athanasian Creed says it this way, the Father is made of none. In other words, no one made the Father, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. There is no time in eternity past where the Son was not begotten of, proceeding from the Father. But in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, There's a little word called today, which is important. So we know from verses like John 3.16 that He is the only begotten, the eternally begotten Son of God. But in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, the Father says to the Son, Today I have begotten you. Well, the question is, what in the world day is He talking about? Is Is it when He was born in Bethlehem? That's a possibility. But I believe in the context of this chapter, that what he's speaking of is the enthronement of Christ in glory. In the day of his resurrection and his ascension and his installment as king in glory, God says, that is my son, he's begotten of me, and what you do with Jesus is what you do with me. Today I have begotten you as my son, you will regard my son or I will not have regard for you. To put angels ahead of the Son or on the same level of the Son makes no sense because the Father is all about His Son. To please the Father, we've got to put nothing ahead of His Son. We must behold, believe in, and glorify Jesus Christ, the Son. And because Jesus is the Son, Jesus has all the authority. Did you know biblically that the concept name is directly tied with authority? Because he has the name Son, he has the authority to go into the Father's house. I remember when I was growing up, the first time my parents gave me a key to the house. I had always been the son of my father. But there was a time in which, probably prematurely, if they were to look back on it, but there was a time in which they said, my son is responsible enough to have the keys to the house. Jesus has the keys to the Father's house. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in 1 Peter 3.22, we learn that all authority includes even the angels who have been subjected to Him because He is the Son. No angel has the keys to save your soul. No angel can deliver you from the malady that is coming against those who are dead in their trespasses in sin. Only Jesus has the keys that you need to get to the Father's heart and into the Father's house. And by the way, the angels aren't confused about this. We're confused about it sometimes. I go to funeral homes and people are clearly confused about it. Got another angel in heaven? No! 
The angels are the angels and we are people and Jesus came to rescue people and He is still incarnate in glory right now so that we will be forever rescued and raised and redeemed as human beings. You're not going to stop being a human by coming to Christ. That was, that was not in the notes. But, but angels are not confused about who gets the glory. Drop down to verse 6 real quick. And when He... The Father again brings the firstborn into the world. He says, and let all the angels of God worship Him. The angels know who to worship. The angels worship the firstborn King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who's firstborn of all creation. The one who was firstborn from the dead. The exalted King of the nations is who the angels are busy worshiping. So why would we worship the angels? Firstborn is an important word in verse 6. The firstborn is Jesus. And the word does not mean that Jesus was created at His birth. Firstborn in the Old Testament is a designation of rank. Now, it's a rank that was often held by the firstborn son, who was actually born. But in Jesus' case, it is a designation of rank regardless of birth order. Let me give you an example. King David was the eighthborn of Jesse. But he's called in Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, the firstborn of God. Jesus is the firstborn, whether he's born or not. He's the Lord over all creation, and because he was born into the world, he is able to redeem the world as the one who has the position and the authority of God's Son to rescue those who trust in him. Jesus is the firstborn Son we've been waiting for. He is the Son to whom the whole universe must bow the knee, even the angels. The author speaks about the father bringing his son into the world, which again, some commentators think is when Jesus comes at Bethlehem in the city of David. But it seems more likely that the author is talking about the bringing of the son into the world to come. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 5, he's bringing his son out of his resurrection, out of the grave, and ascending him to the right hand where he now rules and reigns in righteousness. And when Jesus completes the rescue mission, after he empties himself of all but love, and he obeys perfectly as a man, and he goes all the way to the cross where he is nailed and slaughtered for our sin, and on the third day he defeats the tomb and is raised in glory, and God raises him up, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, God says, Behold my firstborn son, submit to him. This king of glory. The point that the author is making is that Jesus has done what he came to do without failing. The Old Testament, by the way, speaks of bringing the people of God into the, into the land. Bringing them out of slavery, out of the wilderness, into the promised land. But guess what? They still failed. But there is a son that God sent. His name is Jesus. And when Jesus is brought out of death, out of despair, and ascended to the right hand of the Father to be the forever king of glory, his obedience is complete and his victory is assured. And when you trust in him, you get his victory as well. Every time God brings you out of the muck and the mire of destruction without Jesus, you go right back to it like a dog licking his own vomit. 
But the moment you give your life to Jesus and He changes you from the inside out, something dynamic and radical and amazing happens on the inside and you are seen as one who is in Christ. And if Christ is ascended and can never be cast out, if you're in Him, neither can you. And that is why the angels worship Because Jesus is the Son, and He's the King, and He did everything that He needed to do to accomplish what He came to do. So He quotes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, which reads in a Greek translation, Let all the angels of God worship Him. So in a verse, get this church, in a verse where the author says the angels worship Yahweh, the author of Hebrews grabs that verse and says, no, the angels worship Jesus. So right here, by quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 43, the author is saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Where there is the Father, there is the Son. You can't separate them. There's not a contest between the Father and the Son. Jesus is Vision of eternity in Revelation 5. Excuse me, in John's vision of eternity in Revelation 5, we read these words. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing in eternity. Even the angels who can't fully comprehend what it was to be lost and now saved sing about the power and the worthiness of Jesus, the Lamb of God. How much more ought we worship Him and nothing else? And the miracle, the miracle is that we get to worship Jesus. He could have stayed silent. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have left us in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus came to make our sin-deadened hearts alive to Him. Look back at verse 5. The Son doesn't just have the authority to save you, but He also has the relationship to restore you. He doesn't just have the keys to the house. When He takes you in the house, the Father is home. Even though Jesus bears our sin, because He Himself never did sin, look at what God says of Him. I will be a father to him. He shall be a father to me. Quoting from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 13 says it this way. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him. Listen to this. As I took it from him who was before you. The only way that the loving kindness of the Father cannot be taken from you is if you have placed your faith in His Son. It's the only place in the world where the loving kindness of the Father will never disappear. And for some of you, God is holding open. He's being patient so that you would come to repentance. He's been knocking on the door of your heart. Things have happened in your life that have caused you to think there's got to be something more to this life than just my own pride and my own feelings and my own job and my own career and my own marriage. There's got to be something bigger than that. There's got to be something more lasting than that. And I'm here to tell you there is. And it's the love of a father who allowed his son to come down from heaven to save your soul. 
And if that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't confront you, then I beg you to keep listening. Because God wants to save. And Jesus has the keys to the house of the Father where there is love abundant and unceasing. Church, we're the ones who know what it's like to be stuck in sin, not the angels. We're the ones who know what it's like to be far from God, not the angels. We know the pain our sin has caused in our lives and in the lives of those that we've hurt. We know the joy that that sin steals by taking us away from the heart of the Father. But the promise of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, 5, and 6 is that Jesus has the authority to save you and He has the access to deliver you into the love of a Father who never fails. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He didn't go to some physical temple. He went into heaven itself. Listen to this. To appear in the presence of God for who? For us. He's there to plead your case on the basis of what He did on the cross. In Christ, you can know and have and enjoy a love that you do not deserve, but which the Father delights to give to all who will turn from their sin and worship His Son. Do you know how much love there is for you in Christ? You want to know a verse that will blow your mind? John 17, verse 23. You remember this verse, I in them and you. This is Jesus talking, he's praying to the Father. I in them, who? The people that that he saves. I in them and you in me. Why? That they may become perfectly one so that we could be all together in the gospel. So that the world may know, that the world may know. Why do we gather together in the unity of the Spirit? So that the world may know that you sent me. And it gets better. And loved them. How did he love us? And loved them even as you loved me. How much does the Father love you in Christ? He loves you as much as Jesus. Oh, but I, but I failed. But I sinned. But I did something wrong but I stumbled over here. Run back to Christ and know the love of a father, which is like the love for his only begotten son. Church, the angels cannot give you what your heart most desperately needs. But when you see the worth of Jesus and repent of your sin and trust in him, Jesus says there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This morning, the angels don't want your worship, but they sure will rejoice if you'll repent and worship Christ. As the deacons begin to make preparation for the Lord's Supper, if you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to join in the everlasting song of the angels. Run into the Father's outstretched arms, repent of your sin and trust in Christ, and enter the love of the Father that never fails. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being all together. We thank you, God, for the joy of seeing four new brothers and sisters in Christ walk in the waters of baptism and declare that they belong to you and that you are their Lord. God, we pray that as we enter into this
time of remembering the cross and what it cost you, remembering the cross and that it does not have the final word because you were raised on the third day, looking, God, to your coming again. I pray for those that will not be able to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning because they know they do not yet belong to you, that your blood is not yet their blood, that your body is not yet their body, that your death is not yet their death. I pray, God, today would be the last time that the elements of the supper, the bread and the juice, would ever pass them by because you are calling them to know the love of the Heavenly Father through faith in Christ. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.